This is KMTT. Tuesday, Parshat HaShavua, will be delivered by Rav Alex Israel. One of the most significant things about this uh, Shabbat is its status as Shabbat uh, Zachor. Uh, as many of us will know, uh, many poskim, many halachic authorities consider hearing Parshat Zachor to be a mitzvah diorita, a Torah obligation. And therefore, you will find um, people who sometimes don't attend shul on a regular basis will particularly make their way to hear the Kriyata Torah this week so that they can hear the particular parsha, the particular paragraph which relates to the story of Amalek. And of course, the mentioning of Amalek, which we read this week, uh, we read a few psukim from the end of Parashat Ki um at the end of uh, in Devarim chapter 25. Um, this is related to our identification of Haman uh, with the people of Amalek. Um, and we're going to spend some time this week talking about Amalek. Uh, we're not going to get uh, too involved in the Megillah itself, but we're going to talk from a Tanakh perspective about Amalek and what we find so objectionable to Amalek? What, what, what do we find so problematic with this nation? Let's read the Psukim as they appear in Debarim, the Psukim, the verses that we're going to read on Shabbat. Zachor et Remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you came out of Egypt. baderech, that they met you on the way, when you were tired and weary, they attacked you on the way, and they um, attacked all of those who were stragglers and weak. And the way that the Mepharshim understand this phrase, the Ibn Ezra and Rashi, is that, and... Amalek did not fear God. And when you have respite from all of your enemies around in the land, in the land which God will give you as inheritance, destroy the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Do not forget. Now, obviously, the question is, um, what should we not forget? Why is this so critical not to forget this this thing? Um, but before we engage in our full analysis, I'd like to point out that this is not the only parsha in the Torah where Amaleka mentioned. Um, Amaleka mentioned in several parshiot, but this is not the only place where we're told that we have a vendetta against Amalek. Uh, we have a sort of... Uh, eternal battle, eternal struggle with uh, the nation known as Amalek. The reason why I mention it is because there is a parallel uh, passage when we actually see the story itself of the attack of Amalek in the desert, and that we find at the end of Shemot chapter 17. Shemot Perak Yuzayin, there we recall the war with Amalek, where uh, Moshe's hands were Whenever Moshe lifted his hands, we won. Whenever Moshe dropped his hands, we lost. That uh, Moshe had two assistants holding his hand up. 
And in that story, Yehoshua weakened Amalek and his people in battle. And the parsha there ends, I'm reading the Maftir of uh, Parsha B'Shalach, uh, Shemot chapter 17, verse 14. Vayoma Hashem al-Moshe. God said to Moshe, Ketov zot zikaron basefer. Write this in a book as a testimony. V'sim ba'ozne Yehoshua. And put it in the ears of Yehoshua and remind Yehoshua. Ki macho emchet zecher amalek mitachad ha-shamayim. Because I will wipe, wipe out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. And there, Vayiven Sham Mizbeach, Vayikrashim HaShem Nisi. Moshe builds an altar, he calls the altar, he gives the altar a name, which is, God is my banner, HaShem Nisi. Vayomer, and he said, Kiyad al Most people understand this as, A hand on the throne of God, Milchama LaShem Ba'amalek, Midor Dor. There is a war between God and Amalek, for eternity. Now, there is a fascinating analysis which needs to be uh, done. We're only going to do half of it um, between these two uh, places, one in Shemot and one in Devarim. What we're not going to deal with, um, but I might as well mention it already at this point, what we're not going to deal with is actually the difference in the battle descriptions, where in uh, Shemot um, it sounds like the Jewish people actually go to war against Amalek. Uh, if you recall the description there, it says um, that Moshe turns around to Yehoshua and says, choose men and go out and fight with Amalek. And uh, the, the battle takes place on the following day. This sounds like an organized battle where the Israelites have, a, have an army and they fight Amalek face to face. And in, in fact, it would appear from this story that uh, we are victorious by that we don't have a knockout blow, but we do have a, a significant weakening. We we uh, we weaken Amalek. In other words, effectively, Am Yisrael win the war. Uh, Devarim presents a, a totally different picture. Devarim gives the impression, as we are coming out of Egypt, of some sort of surprise attack. Uh, they come out your tail all of the stragglers this is not a frontal war this is not a uh, war of armies this is a uh, terrorist attack of some sort where they attack the weak and straggling and uh, there it almost uh, appears that Amalek got the upper hand in Devarim and uh, it certainly is a challenge to resolve both of the stories and that's going to be beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today, uh, but it's something for you to think about. But I'm going to respond more to the command to wipe out Amalek, because when you look in Shemot, when you look in the story of Amalek as it appears in the book of Exodus, there it says that uh, the war, the eternal war with Amalek, is actually not the war of Am Yisrael, but it is God's war. It says explicitly there, Milchama Lashem Amalek God has an eternal war with Amalek, and um, it also says that it's God's responsibility to wipe them out. God says, Ki macho amalek. I will wipe out the memory of Amalek. Whereas, if you look in Sefer Devarim, if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, there we see um, that God turns around and says that when you have uh, peace from all your enemies and you're settled in the land, Timche amalek. You, Israel, 
have to wipe out the memory of Amalek, do not forget. In other words, this is our responsibility. And in, in the way that it's described in Devarim, it is also the attack is on us. The, the Amalek attack, uh, Amalek, Amalek attacked you when you came out of Egypt. And obviously the question here is, whose war is it? Is it God's war or is it our war? Is the affront to uh, Am Yisrael or is the affront somehow to Hashem? So I want to try and begin by by analysing this a, a question a little bit. Now, if we say that somehow this is an affront to God, how exactly does that work? What does it mean that you can uh, the Amalek come and how should I say it attack God? Uh, how, do, how does how does that uh, manifest itself? And here I'd like to quote Rashi, Rashi from Devarim, who focuses. It's a famous Rashi. He focuses on the phrase who met you on the way and he says Lashon Mikre it means they met us by chance Lashon Mikre it was a chance happening they just Amalek were travelling through the desert and suddenly he stumbled across the Jewish people and decided to attack on a whim that's the first explanation he brings another explanation that the word comes to the word Keri uh, which refers to a certain type of ritual impurity. But his third explanation is that a a strange phrase, is actually from the language of kar, as opposed to hot, cold. That he cooled you down. Here I'll read the line. He cooled you down. He cooled your sense of your you were boiling before, and Amalek came and took away your your heat. And he explains what he means by this. All the nations were scared of fighting you. And along came Amalek and began attacking us, and thereby showed the way for others. Here is a parable, says Rashi. I'll give you a parable. Imagine that there is a steaming bath, boiling hot bath. No human being, no living thing will be able to actually go into this steaming bath. Some uh, crazy man comes along, some nonsensical person, a wild person comes along, and he jumps into the bath. Even though he is severely burnt, he What did he do? He cooled down the bath before others. And this parable um, describes Amalek. Uh, let me try and use uh, the language of Nachama Leibovitz to illustrate this mean, what this means. Nachama Leibovitz tries to put this on the backdrop. But, you know, what does it mean that Am Yisrael are compared to this boiling bath? What is that? So, um, this is described here, when you're coming out of Egypt. The boiling bath was the miracles and wonders of coming out of Egypt. And uh, I'll read the I'll read the lines of Nechama Leibovitz here. And she says the following, I quote, All the wonders and miracles of Egypt and the Red Sea had come to publicize the exclusive power of God. Indeed, when the children of Israel went out of Egypt, all the nations of the world, with the exception of Amalek, 
was seized with dread and awe. And here she quotes from uh, from the Shiratayam, Shamu Amim, Chil Gazun. The people have heard, they tremble. The mighty men of Moab are seized by fright. All the people of Canaan melt away. Terror and dread fall upon them. And the Hummer explains, Mankind as a whole might have taken one great step forward and acknowledged the sovereignty of the God of justice and truth. But then, along came Amalek, unrestrained by the dread and awe that kept, that kept all the nations of the world in check, jumped, as it were, to use the Midrashic expression, into the boiling cauldron. What was there to fear? They were wandering in the wilderness, weary and struggling. Why should they not be attacked and spoiled? This is the way of the world. In this manner, the moment of awe at the mighty hand of God passed away, and the atmosphere of astonishment at his miracles evaporated. The world returned to the idols of gold and silver, its faith in mortal power and brute force. The opportunity had been lost, and who was responsible? Amalek. So what Nechama is trying to say is that we came out of Egypt, and the entire world was in awe of God's power. The entire world was ready to recognize the message of B'nai Israel, But Amalek couldn't, couldn't bear this. This uh, irked them so deeply that they had to attack. They had to show that we were not untouchable, that we were touchable, that we were vulnerable. And thereby we lost our luster, we lost our, our amazing uh, untouchable reputation. And along with that, the, the reputation of God became tainted. And therefore, says uh, Nechama Levitz, or says Rashi, Rashi gave the, the parable. Um, we understand why God has a, ba- has a battle with Amalek. God has a vendetta against Amalek because this was a moment where, where they actually attacked God's prestige. They weren't so much attacking the Jewish people as attacking um, the place of God in the world, the supremacy of God, God's particular association with B'nai Israel. This was actually an attack on him. And therefore, as we read in B'Shalach, um, and this is uh, this this attempt to tarnish the pristine image of God in the world. Um, God holds it against them for eternity. <clears throat> so this is our first approach, and this uh, truly explains uh, how God will will make Amalek into its en- into his enemy. But uh, I would like to suggest a further reason for God's antipathy towards the people of Amalek. And this relates not so much to their attitude towards God himself. But I'd like to, re- I'd like to sort of, uh, how should I say it, unite the Ben Adam L'Chaveiro here and the Ben Adam L'Makom. I'd like to unite the approach which says that God has a war with Amalek and that man has to decimate Amalek. Um, and I'd like to suggest that the problem is not so much Amalek's attitude towards God, but rather their attitude towards man, to human suffering, to ethics, to to pain, to the disadvantage. And um, and I'd like to examine Amalek's long history with the Jewish people, as it appears through Tanakh. Um, and there are many, many places where we see Amalek outside the Torah, Dafka uh, through through Nach. And uh, I'd like to sort of illustrate this. We're going to go through um, four different places where we meet Amalek. Let's let's take a look. We're going to start off 
in the book of Shoftim, the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges, Shoftim, describes a difficult history, a difficult period of history for the for, for Am Yisrael, because we're constantly being invaded, we have no national security policy, and we can't defend our borders. And, and there we're frequently attacked by different neighboring kingdoms. The first one we meet, um, for our purposes at any rate, is the first one we're going to talk about is the kingdom of Moab. And Moab is our neighbor, our neighbor on our eastern side across the Dead Sea. And uh, frequently there is trouble. But if you look here in Perak Gimel of Shoftim, you will see that when Eglon Melech Moab comes to attack Bnei Israel, he takes his neighbor Amon, but he also brings with him Va'amalek, Va'yelech, Va'yach Yisrael, Va'yeshua Tirhatmarim. When Moab needs um, reinforcements, he brings, takes with him uh, the people of Amalek. Later in the book of Shoftim, if you look in chapter 6, the famous story of Gidon, the prophet, the, the, the Shofet Gidon, we see a another attack by Amalek. This time the aggressor is, the main aggressor is Midian. Um, and there we see, Vataz Yad Midian al-Israel, Midian was stronger over Israel. Here the period of invasion is seven years. And it says uh, things were so severe. That because of the Midianites, we made had to hide out in, in tunnels and in various craggy peaks, mitzadot and ma'arot in caves, because we were terrified of the Midianites. Apparently they were exceptionally cruel. And it describes that... Midian alone, Midian were not the only ones who came. And I'll read to you the description here. I'm reading from the beginning of chapter 6, Pasuk Gimel. And after the Israelites had sown their crops, Midian and Amalek would come down with Bnei Kerem, and they would attack them and destroy the produce of the land all the way to Gaza, and would leave nothing for the sustenance of the Israelites. And then it describes what they do. Not a sheep or an ox or an ass, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, swarming as thick as locusts. They would invade the land and ravage it. The, this is the description where they come on, on camelback, it would see. Later on in Perak Vapasuk Lamad Gimel, we see v'chol midyan v'amalek uvnei kerem ne'esfuyachdav v'yavu v'yachanu be'emek Israel. They come to Emek Israel, and that's where the battle takes place. So, what do we see here? We see that Amalek appear to be quite comfortable invading the land of Israel. They loot. They take advantage of the fact that other nations have invaded the lands of Canaan, and they sort of piggyback onto them. And that's what we see. In the in the uh, nascent period of the book of Shoftim, the book of Judges, however, Amalek do reappear, and they reappear in the book of Shmuel, way after the period in which Shaul is meant to have killed them. I know there is some sort of impression that Shaul killed the entire people of Amalek, um, apart from the king Agag. However, this is far from the truth if you read Sefer Shmuel carefully, because if you look at the description in Perak in chapter 30, it is clear that there are many, many hundreds, if not thousands, 
of Amalekites alive, and uh, we'll describe exactly what they do. They, they, they end up destroying, burning to the ground, a town which David has made his home, a town called Siklag. And David is, is out at battle. We're not going to go into the detail here, but I'll read you the story here. It's a story that few people, uh, unless you, you know, read Shmuel, not a lot of people know it, but it's, it's a very telling story about uh, the sort of culture of Amalek. David, as I say, he's not yet king at this point, returns to his hometown, Siklag, and he finds that it has been raided by a group of Amalekim. And uh, this is what it says. The Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and against Siklag. They stormed Siklag and they burnt it down and they had taken the women captive. They did not kill any of them, but carried them off and went their way. And the likelihood is that they they took the women, and it also says they took all the children as well. Mikaton va'adgadol, they didn't kill anyone because they're obviously going to sell the children and the women on this slave market. All, there are no men there because they were out at war. Now it says that David and his men came to the town and they found it burnt down, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive, and and, and they cried. And but eventually David and his six hundred men set out, and uh, eventually they come across an Egyptian man in the desert. And this Egyptian man is famished, and they give him food to eat and water to drink, and he ate and regained his strength, because he had eaten no food for three days nor three nights. And David said to him, To who do you belong, and where are you from? And this is what he said. He says, I am an Egyptian boy, he answered, the slave of an Amalekite. Um, He says... I'm reading from Perak Lamed, Pasukud Gimel, in Shmuel Aleph. My master abandoned me because I was sick for three days. And then he describes their route. He says, We raided the Negev of the Kreti, and the Negev of Yehuda, and the Negev of Kalev, and we burnt Siklag. And David says to him, Will you take me down to this this group? And he says, Swear to God that you won't kill me, or you won't um, give me over to my previous master, and I will take you there. And they swear, they come down and the, the boy leads David to this Amalekite force and he catches up with them and the description is that they are spread over the landscape, eating and drinking and making merry with the vast spoil that they had taken. So let's ask ourselves a question from what we know here in Tanakh and what we've read so far. Who is Amalek? Let us digest the material in these passages. First of all, we should know that there is no such thing as Eretz Amalek. There is Eretz Edom, the land of Edom, the land of Moab, the land of Ammon, the land of Aram in, in the Tanakh. But there is no Eretz Amalek. Amalek don't have any land. They are a, a tribe who are desert nomads. And being desert nomads, they don't really have any way to subsist. I, I guess what you'd expect them to do is to settle down somewhere and to engage in farming and to engage in a sort of an honest living. But they prefer not to do that. They they. They're desert nomads who basically function as, as pirates and highwaymen. And this is exactly what we see throughout these three stories. In the story of David, they go and they attack, they raid. 
the Negev of Kreti and the Negev of Yehuda. In other words, they engage in border incursions. They go and raid villages, take all the women and children, sell them on the slave markets, take all the food, take all the animals. That's what they live off. Um, they join, you know, they, they in, in Shoftim we saw how they clearly weren't that strong to make attacks on their own. So they join in other invading forces going along for the ride as extras. And um, we see exactly what they do. The description in Shoftim was that they come through the valleys of Israel and raid the country all the way down to Gaza every single spring. Whenever Israel sow their crops, they simply go in and, and steal it. And they, they attack whole areas, selling people on slave markets. They are a people who are happy to steal and murder as long as there is a promise of some sort of financial gain. And that is how they survive. They, 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 I would say that Amalek are not so much immoral as amoral. They're very happy taking a, a slave, an Egyptian boy, and because he's sick, they just leave him in the desert. They abandon him in the wilderness and let him starve to death, uh, rather than him slowing them down. So, they don't have any, any craft, they have no trade, they don't plant fields, they don't plant trees, they, they're just parasites, professional parasites. Um, by the way, we, we also understand exactly why they attack Israel in the desert. Um, the description of, of the attack of Amalek is in Shemot Perak Zion. But if you recall, in, in, in the earlier part of Perak Zion, B'nai Israel in the Midbar get water. That's when the first time when Moshe struck the rock and water comes out of the rock and it, it feeds all of all of B'nai Israel who, who were terribly thirsty. And uh, we we fully understand now why Amalek come to attack the Israelites. It's not out of some sort of anti-Semitic hatred or some sort of uh, vendetta against against God. Rather, they, they just want the water. They want this precious resource in the desert. And that's the sort of people that they are. The minute they see a weak slave nation who have something they want, they simply come and attack. Um, a similar image of Amalek you find even later on in Shmuel, um, in Shmuel Bet Perak Aleph, where you see an Amalekite boy, a, a, a son of an Amalekite man, who is simply walking around a battlefield, almost in the middle of battle, looking for trinkets and finding things that he can pick up in order to sort of seize from the from the battlefield. And he chances upon Shaul HaMelech, King Saul, who is lying half dead on his sword, and eventually he comes and takes the question about whether he actually killed him or didn't kill him, it's not really important for our purposes but he walks away with his crown and what does he do with his crown? So he could sell it but he realises, oh my goodness I've got an amazing opportunity, I will take it to David Shaul's arch enemy and I will you know, be highly praised in other words, once again, we see the notion of Amalek involved in the dirtiest business the lowest business of sort of uh, walking around a battlefield and stealing trinkets from the dead and then trying to use it to their greatest advantage, trying to sell themselves to the highest bidder um, on the markets. And in this case, it meant going to King David of that particular Amalekite boy. It cost him his life because David, he, he said that he had actually killed King, King Saul. This is, this is who Amalek are. And... Um, now we can see that their entire national culture is is deeply problematic, is deeply 
well, it's really quite repugnant, where they have no honest way of making a living, and essentially what they do is they prey on the weak, they play, prey on the powerless, they have absolutely no regard for human life, they have no regard for people's property, they are happy to sell people on the slave markets, anything in order to get what they want. And this clearly is a degenerate culture, a degenerate national culture, which Am Yisrael are asked to eradicate, and which God finds quite repugnant. Um, in this regard, I'd like to focus on the, the other phrase, which I mentioned before, where where Amalek are described by the Pesukim in, in, that we will read on Shabbat, the Pesukim in Devarim, as the law Yarei Elohim. They do not fear God. And here, once again, we have to examine what fear of God means. We, we have maybe our own impressions of Ahavat Hashem and Yirat Hashem, but the law Yarei Elohim, how do we understand this phrase? And um, I don't remember who taught me this particular, um, these particular places, but using a, a clear methodology of, of, of looking up the phrase throughout t- Tanakh, you can see several places where the phrase Yirat Elohim comes up, even in Sefer Breshit. And let me give a, a few examples. Um, where does Yirat Elohim um, come up? The first place it comes up is when Avraham visits Avimelech. He visits uh, the Plishtim, and if we, you recall the story, he lies about his wife. He says, Achotihi, she's my sister, and Avimelech takes, her, takes him, only takes uh, Sarah, only to be to discover that uh, they're really married. And and he says to, to, to Avraham, why did you do this? Why did you lie to me and uh, tell me that she was your sister instead of your wife? And... You know, you could have, uh, I could have uh, committed a great crime of adultery, he says to him. And Avram responds to him and says the following. You'll find it in Breshit, Perakhaf. And this is what he says. Ki amarti, because I said, Rak ein yirat elokim There is no fear of God in this place. You will kill me because of my wife. That's the first instance. Second instance is with Yosef. Yosef uh, is the viceroy of Egypt, the leader of Egypt, and his brothers are powerless and helpless in front of him, and they're afraid they're going to be killed by him. And he seeks to reassure them. And uh, you know, when they when he throws them into jail and and then eventually frees them, and he says to them, "Zot asu vichyu." He wants them to send somebody up to the to their father in Canaan. He says, "Zot asu vichyu eta elokim." Ani yare, I fear God. Maybe the ultimate example is uh, the, the example that we see in in Shemot chapter one. When Shemot chapter one, we all remember the story of the Egyptian midwives, the Yaldota uh, Ivriot, and uh, they defy Pharaoh's uh, order to kill the babies, and they save the newborn Israelite males. And uh, there, once again. We are told what their motivation is. It's, uh, again, you will find it in Shemot, Perak Aleph, Pasuk. Um, Pasuk Yud Zayin, where it says, Vatirena hamialdot et elokim, velo asuka ashedibaralehem melech mitzrayim, vatachayena etela yeladim. And then they're actually summoned before the king of Egypt, and they have to, um, 
argue their point and explain why they're not obeying the king. Um, what do these three cases of Yurat Elohim have in common? They have something very, very simple in common. In each case, you have somebody who holds life and death in their hands, uh, be it be it uh, the king of Imelech, or be it the king Yosef, or be it the Mialdot. And they could, and it maybe would be even in their better interest to kill this person. Avimelech could kill Abraham to get Sarah. Yosef could get rid of his brothers. The Mialdot could listen to Pharaoh and kill, but they don't. They don't kill because simply because they fear God, because it is immoral. Because they see a lonely, defenseless person and they're not doing it. Avraham, obviously in the case of Avraham, says, I was worried that you would do this to me. You'd take advantage of me because I was weak and defenseless and uh, you have no moral integrity. It's quite a insult. But, um, of course, this is what is, what, what is happening here. And the only motivation not to kill is this uh, fear of God. And this is stressed in many, many uh, examples um, throughout Tanakh, where we see that Yerat Elohim um, is 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 used to express moral responsibility. So, in short, um, Amalek represents a lack of Yuratelokim. They represent power and opportunism and the quick profit at the expense of the helpless. And um, and obviously, this is the opposite of Yuratelokim. This is not only an affront to to civilization to people. It's an affront to Hashem. Hashem, who upholds the values of tzedek and mishpat. The, the fear of God is that which leads us to exercise morality over any personal profit or gain. And Amalek are insatiable when it comes to their materialistic needs, and they simply disregard the value of, of human life. They're such opportunists that they kill and steal in order to get what they want. So what we see here is a, a portrait of the way of life that Amalek follow, and it's a, it's a life of lawlessness and violence, and it's, it's a way of life that Hashem really abhors. And that's why maybe as a nation, um, maybe when we get peace, right, that's what it says in the Torah, when we get peace, when we have our own stability, we have to stand as a nation and remember that we are supposed to be the antithesis to what Amalek stand for. That our aim is letaken olam b'malchut shaddai, that we are there to repair the world under the banner of the kingdom of Hashem. Um, we are there to create a moral, compassionate society and uh, our, our nemesis, our, our enemy, is Amalek, who show no, not only no interest in God, but no interest in the improvement of the world, no interest in, in morality at all. Um, and that is what we are going to commemorate this Shabbat when we say that we want to blot out the memory of Amalek. So what we've done here is we've tried to, uh, I'll try and summarize what I've tried to do in the Shir. We, we explain that there are actually two parashiot, one which says that Israel have a vendetta against Amalek, and one which says that God has this sort of eternal battle with Amalek. And we said, okay, I understand that we've got some accounts to settle with them, but uh, what about God? And maybe we could even further the question, like, 
uh, couldn't we forgive at some point, forgive and forget? But why do we have to constantly remember Lotishkach? Why can we never forget this point? And we raise the possibility that this is about God's prestige, that it's about God's uh, fame in the in the aftermath of 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 Yitziat Mitzrayim, and that was the approach given by Nachamalevitz. But we prefer to sort of scan Tanakh a little bit through the Book of Shoftim and the Book of Shmuel, and uh, see a certain cultural strain, a certain uh, national um, characteristic of Amalek, which is their amoral, uh, their complete disregard for the sanctity of life. And I, what I'm suggesting is, God, this is exactly the, the opposite of, of Hashem. This is the lawyer Elokim. This is the lack of God-fearing. Um, this is the lack of uh, an awareness of God. And that is exactly why we have to keep it in mind. That's why we must never forget it. Because we have to remember that we as a Jewish people have to be the opposite of that. And if we want to uphold God, then the sanctity of life, the sensitivity and compassion towards human beings, the notion that we are there to assist other people rather than take advantage of them is, is paramount. Wishing everybody a, a Purim Sameach. I hope you have a, a wonderful, happy and joyous Purim. Or maybe we should add one last thing. Of course, um, one of the ways that we commemorate uh, Purim is exactly with this compassion. Um, we recall how in the Megillah, the, our enemies were told that they could kill us. And uvabizar, they were allowed to... Ushlalam uh, lavoz. They were allowed to take everything of ours. This is classic Amalek. They were allowed to not only kill the Jews, but take everything which belonged to them, which is a classic Amalek trait. Um, However, when we succeeded in defending ourselves and killing our enemies, it says, The Jews did not take any of the spoils. They did not take any of the booty, that they, uh, any of the material wealth of the people that they killed, because that wasn't the aim. The aim was simply self-defense. It wasn't to, to loot and it wasn't to, uh, you know, pillage. However, one of the ways that we commemorate Purim is through Matanot Yonim, through Mishloach Banot, through sending gifts to people, through caring for people, through caring for the poor, through in- increasing the sense of Orav uh, Bikar, through the sense of of, of 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 mutual responsibility. And it could be that uh, that exactly is a counterweight, counterbalance to the um, lack of humanity of Amalek, where we exercise and expand our humanity, we, we increase our sense of responsibility to others, and particularly with Matanot Levionim, one of the most important mitzvot of the day, we look out for the poor, we look out for the people who, who are the have-nots, who don't have so much, and ensure that they have a good Purim as well, and that uh, once again drives home the message of how different we are to the culture of Amalek. Once again, Thank you very much for listening.